Little over a week ago now, the world watched as 2,000 athletes representing 92 countries paraded into the stadium in Pyeongchang, Korea for the Winter Olympics. Now, you would think that watching a bunch of people walking around in a circle would be pretty boring. <laughs> But uh, it's actually pretty fascinating, isn't it, to, to see all the, the different kinds of people from all over the world in both tiny little groups and huge crowds and all kinds of different outfits and colors. You can, you can sense the, the honor and joy that people feel representing their country or waving a flag. And it got me thinking, though, why do we have each nation come in separately? Why not just have all 2,000 athletes enter together in a huge throng of people? The answer is obvious. The whole point of the exercise is to identify with your country. Right? It, the, it's not to identify with humanity in general or with other athletes in specifically. It, it's Canadian athletes were taking the moment to identify themselves with Canada. Right? The Korean athletes were identifying themselves with Korea. Russian athletes were identifying themselves with, well, <laughs> but you get the point, right? <laughs> this was a grand spectacle of showing off one's identity as a certain kind of person or a certain people or nation. Today, I'd like to ask the question to you as we begin, who do you identify as? Who do you identify as? Of course, I could get a hundred different kinds of answers to that question. Based on your nationality, your race, your gender, your age, your family, your occupation, your hobbies, or whatever. Much, there's many ways. Our identities are multifaceted, they're a complex thing, unique to each one of us. And that's usually a good thing, a, a beautiful thing even. But I believe that we'll always have a core to our identity, a core aspect of our identity that shapes and colors everything else. We all have it. So maybe it's that you're a man or a woman, or that you're black or white or a certain ethnicity, or it may be your role in a relationship that you have as a child or a parent or a spouse. What comes first on your social media bio? What would be the last thing you'd remove from that? Who we see ourselves as, I believe, it shapes so much of, of what we do, what we value, and what we pursue in life. So what is at the heart of your identity? Who do you identify with? Who do you identify as? To see what God says about who we are, let's go ahead and turn together to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2. Peter is going to lay out in two brief yet incredible verses what it means to be God's new people. And I hope that for us who believe in God, that our hearts can be reawakened to the wonder of who we are today in Christ. Let's pray that God would indeed do that in each one of us. Heavenly Father, as we open your word and we look at these words that were written so long ago and yet have so much bearing on our lives even today in this moment, we pray that your spirit would truly speak to us, that our hearts would be ready to receive, ready to listen, and ready to apply what we hear. Would you take who we are, God, and shape us in the image of what you would like us to be in your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Reading from the beginning of, of chapter 2, Peter says this. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
as you come to the Lord, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And we read a lot of this last week, and the picture that we got, the main picture was of us being like stones, right? Living stones that are are being built into this great living temple built on Christ, who's the cornerstone. And these verses show how foundational and central Jesus is to God's plans. And how if we believe in Jesus, we are built up to find his worth and to show his worth off to the world around us. But we also saw at the tail end there how those who reject Christ will stumble in their resistance to him. It's a real tragic picture. But Peter's train of thought doesn't end there in verse 8. It continues into our passage today. So he goes in verse 9, But you, but you, or as the New Living Translation puts it, but you are not like that. In, In direct contrast to unbelievers, disobedience, and destiny, this is who believers are. So what are we then? Well, let's see how Peter spells this out. Verse 9, read with me. But, though, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now... You have received mercy. The overarching point of these verses, I believe, could be put this way. That God's people are graciously given a radically new identity. When we're built on Christ, God's people are graciously given a radically new identity. Like I just talked about a moment ago, I believe we all have that that core to our identity who shapes who we are, that shapes everything else. And I am convinced that if Jesus is your Savior, the core of your identity should be Him. You should see yourself before anything else as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian. He should be our cornerstone too. Just as Peter already said, Christ is God's chosen cornerstone for all of history. Now he says, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So our life as God's people is clearly meant to praise him, to revolve around him. But sometimes I wonder what actually our lives are centered on. What, whether our Christians are more defined by Jesus or by their political party or by their last name, by their skin color, by their exercise program, by our sports fandom, even by our, our failures and successes. Some of you are completely defined by being a a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a fiancé, or a spouse. Sometimes I wonder if I am more of a, a husband, a father, or a pastor than I am a follower of Jesus. What's truly most important to me? What consumes my mind more? What do I let shape what? Or maybe even more revealing, what would your family or friends say defines you? We are 
radically different than we once were. Unbelievers, it says, stumble in their disobedience. But you, he says, but you are, present has already, you are a chosen race. This is who we are now. Even though at one time we seem the furthest thing from chosen or royal or holy. We, are, we were not God's people. We were our own people. Living however we pleased. And thus as Ephesians 2 puts it, having no hope and without God in this world. Which means that our radically new identity isn't just glorious, it is entirely gracious. Everything about God's people here in 1 Peter is framed in what God has done for his people, what he's already done. We don't choose ourselves. We don't make ourselves royal priests. We don't just join a holy nation or, or make God take us as his own. We don't earn mercy. We can't. And yet, Peter says, this is all ours. Because of what God did through Jesus. But you are. So what does this radically new identity look like? I'll point out five aspects that I see in this text. But, but when we talk about identity, we usually talk about it very individualistically. We've even started doing that today. But we, As in like, this is, is your personal identity, or this is my identity in Christ. But Peter isn't talking to individual believers here. He's talking to the church at large. And so every picture he uses is a picture of some kind of group of people, assembly of people, an amalgamation of people. So these characteristics all apply to our church as a whole. It's our new identity. And that actually gives us our initial observation about our radical new identity. It involves a new community. A new community. As God's people, we have a new community of people around us. We see this first when Peter says, but you are a chosen race. Chosen race. We have a, a number of different human races represented in this room, of course. Geneticists say that there are three to five major races in the world with up to 30 subdivisions of those. Personally, of course, you know, I'm white. Whiter than sour cream. <laughs> but Peter makes the, quite the radical claim here that in Christ Jesus, there is one race. And that, that people from all races come to Christ, and when they do, they constitute a new race. doesn't matter if in Peter's day they were Jews, Greeks, Romans, Persians, Africans, whoever. And today it doesn't matter if you're from the Americas or Asia or Africa or Arabia or Europe. Under Christ, we become a new special race, which was, is chosen by God. So, does this mean that I'm no longer white? Does it mean that you're no longer black or brown? This, of course not, right? This new race that we have doesn't obliterate our natural ones. It transcends them. That's very important to get. Our ethnicities are preserved even in heaven. Right? Revelation 7 has the, the picture of a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God. Different races, different colors are inherently beautiful to God. It's the way he designed things to be, and they are preserved. Hence, this doesn't make us colorblind towards people of other races. Other races should, shouldn't be ignored. I believe they should be celebrated. But what this verse means is that we are now more than our natural races. So we are knit together with people of many different races to become one new one. It means that you are not just 
Caucasian or Asian anymore. You are far more. You've got a new lineage. The word there he uses for race is actually talking about lineage or a family tree. That is, you've got a new lineage that's more important than your original one. So your new lineage may be singular, but it is also very colorful. Tim Keller says, The church is called a chosen people, literally a distinct ethnic so changed by our encounter with Christ that we are more like one another than like others in our own particular races and societies. I heard a sermon from Matt Chandler this week, and he was talking about the same thing, and he said that as an American, quote, I have more in common with an Iraqi, Afghani, or Iranian brother or sister in Christ than I'll ever have with an unbelieving American. Do you follow that? Okay. Christians have more in common with believers of other races, even races your people are at odds with, than they do with people of their own race. I don't know who this would be for Canadians, Americans maybe, but I have more in common with a North Korean believer than a Canadian unbeliever. Or I have more in common with many of you who look very different from me than I do with some of my own relatives. Now, in case this sounds alarmingly like I'm advocating for a new superior race of people, <laughs> notice Peter does, never said we are a greater race. He said we're a chosen race. And we're chosen because of mercy, not merit. So this shouldn't make us feel superior. It should make us feel humbled. It should never lead to racial discrimination. In fact, as, as Karen Job says, really, here is the foundational cure for the evils of racism in human society. It's seeing fellow believers with humility and unity in the midst of diversity. The early believers were actually sometimes persecuted for this idea of forming a new race. They were seen as antisocial, even, quote, haters of mankind, or people kind, whatever. <laughs> but actually, what the early church was doing in, in seeing beyond the usual racial barriers and hostility, they were accepting anyone who believed, and they were loving mankind better than ever before. So we're a new race. But Peter also says three times here that we're a new people. You see that? We well, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies. Down to verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now that carries a lot of the same idea of a race, except that it also echoes the title people of Israel. And so this isn't saying that we weren't human beings people. It's saying that we weren't a people. So at one time, we were not an identifiable group of people, but now we are. Imagine if you traveled back 100, times, 100 years in time, sorry, to 1918, soon after Calvary Baptist was born. And you informed people then about who would all make up this church in 2018. And then they were able to watch over the next century, watch for each person who would come along. What do you think they would think? I think they'd be astonished by what they saw. You mean... That rebellious young hippie, <laughs> their heart is going to get captured by God? 
You mean that that person born into a very non-Christian home will find Christ? You mean that, that that person that we see living immorally will have their life turned around by God? You mean that that, that child in a, in a Christian home that turns their back on the faith, they'll return? You mean that, that God is going to draw some people from that part of the world and that part of the world and that part of the world and He's going to bring them all together in one church body. Those people, that man, that woman, that kid, they've got nothing in common. But God made us a people anyway. We are sitting amongst a miracle right now. And so we are not just a social club or a religious association. Fellowship for a believer isn't optional. We are a people now in an ethnic sense. We are blood relatives by the blood of Christ. Finally, we also see our new community in the words that we are now a holy nation. The kingdom of God is really a kingdom inside and above every other kingdom. Which means that even as we reside here in Canada, Christians are part of a larger nation. And believers around you, whether from Australia, Belarus, or Cameroon, are your countrymen. Okay, if you are a follower of Jesus, it doesn't matter if you hail from China, the Philippines, Syria, Quebec, a First Nation. Okay, if you're a follower of Jesus, you form part of a new country, okay, which has different borders, different leaders, different laws, and different courts. This is a, this could be a pretty subversive thought. It's not actually politically upsetting, though some might imagine that. Rome felt threatened by this idea of another nation within their own and ended up fighting back. As E.T. Merrill points out, there finally came a time when the Roman Empire had to either fight or tamely acknowledge a superpower within its own borders. The Christian community is a superpower nation transcending our nationalistic borders. And whenever our allegiance isn't first to our human nations, they get worried about us. So be it. I'm not going to overthrow them. One day our king may We might wonder, how can a nation be considered holy? Well, Peter was making a direct reference here to Exodus 19.6, when the Lord called Israel a holy nation, which meant that they were set apart. They used to fit in, they used to blend in every other nation on earth, but no more. As Emin Clowney says, that the point is Israel had been brought into such close fellowship with God. God dwells among them. They are holy because he is holy. But with the dawning of the church, that holy nation was no longer just Jewish. Ephesians 2.19 tells people of any nation, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So you and I, if we believe in Christ, we are members or citizens of a new nation, a new community. And let me just ask, are you truly living as part of that new community? Or are you just coming to sing some nice songs, hear a nice talk, and warm a nice pew? Are you going deeper? Joining a, a small group where I believe this community is lived out on a weekly basis. Practicing hospitality. 
staying late to, to share a meal with others that are different than you, going on a retreat, perhaps crucifying your anti-socialness, actual anti-socialness, in order to truly become part of the people of God. How about officially becoming a member of a church, identifying yourself with it? Are you showing solidarity with the new community that God has placed you in? Ask the question. I really hope that you wouldn't see this as a burden. Because this is the furthest thing from that. You might think that, that grounding your life in a new community sounds very hard to do. Maybe it doesn't seem exciting or meaningful or as, as meaningful as other pursuits in your life. But putting Christ at the center shouldn't be difficult. It shouldn't be scary. It shouldn't be boring or burdensome. It's a glorious thing. It's a beautiful thing, and it's the highest honor imaginable. We see that next. The next aspect is that it is a new honor. God's people are graciously given a new identity, which includes incredible honor from God. We see this first in how we are not just a new race, but a, we are a chosen race. Chosen by God. That speaks of his loving election of believers purely from his own good pleasure. Think for a moment of the masses of people who have refused Jesus outright and will justly be condemned. The gate is wide. The way is easy. that leads to destruction. And that is what we all deserve. God doesn't need to save anyone. So to think that he would pluck me from out of that path and, and turn my heart to him. You might think that it's arrogant to think that we are sure to say that we're chosen by God and it would be if it was us claiming it if it wasn't him that was saying it we also might think it's unfair for God to not choose certain people but grace is what is actually unfair it's a wonder that God chooses anyone at all we are a, a chosen people, not a choice people, not an elite, wise, or strong level of humanity. So why choose us then? And really it comes down to his love. His unexplainable, unfathomable, undeserved love. What an honor that is. Peter also says that we are now royal. royal a royal priesthood to be exact. And this is another echo of Exodus 19.6 where he says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This isn't necessarily saying that we are part of a royal family now, even though we are. The point is more that we are priests Thus, we have special access to God in a special role. And that, and that we are priests who serve the king. That's what makes us royal priests. Priests for the royal court, essentially. Imagine for a minute that you were called up this week and asked to do a, a very special job. Whatever work you do, you are asked to do it for the Prime Minister of Canada. So, you'll be the personal tax accountant or the family doctor for the prime minister or you work with kids you'll be their children's nanny or their tutor or you're, you're going to be the the house cleaner at 24 sussex or the plumber to fix their pipes how would you feel about that now, you feel honored right even if you don't necessarily like them 
you'd feel honored. Your job would take on an added significance, wouldn't it? To be asked to serve someone of, of such power or magnitude would be an honor. And what has happened, already happened to believers, is way beyond this. We are serving the King of Kings. So we are priests that get to represent heaven on earth, a royal priesthood. And then one final aspect of God's people's great honor we see here is at the end of verse 9. It says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We have been called out of darkness. We could have been left there to rot, but we weren't. If Jesus is your Savior, that means he called your name. That your name is written in the book of life. There's a, a young man who used to live in Ottawa and attend Calvary here. And Pastor Bob and I shared some amazement a few weeks ago at a video he posted of himself getting called down and winning on The Price is Right. And so you know how the person's name gets called, so-and-so, come on down! <laughs> and everyone goes ecstatic and the crowd goes wild. How much greater must it be to have your name called out by God Almighty? And to know that you haven't just been gifted a chance to play a game show, but eternal life. Circle back to the priests now. And speaking of immense privileges... Yet another aspect of God's people being graciously given a radically new identity is having a new purpose. As God's new people, we are given a new purpose in life, a new purpose. Of course, you do, we don't tend to only have one purpose in life. We have many. But what is your purpose for living? And what, why are you here on earth? What are you living for? What are you trying to accomplish? Maybe you're trying to wring as much pleasure or fun out of your days as you can. Maybe you're trying to become the best that you possibly can be in your field or in your program. Maybe you're trying to, to climb the ranks as high as you can before the end. Get the most honors. Or maybe you're trying to, to earn as much wealth or toys as you can before you die. And I would propose to you that all of these purposes are way too small. Way too small. Even just trying to surround yourself with people you love and who love you, that's too small. But God's people are given a new, central, greater purpose in life, which should influence all others. We now live for the glory of God. Look how Peter says this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This, this purpose is part of being a holy and royal priesthood. Think of what priests did in their, in their duty. Right? They were given, like I said, that special access to God, and they had a special purpose for God. And this purpose, at its heart, was the glory and worship and praise of God. They facilitated the worship of God by worshiping themselves and by helping others do so. And this is likewise the purpose that God gives his people in the church. It says to, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or the claim, proclaim the excellencies could also be translated, declare his praises. We must not get distracted by the many other things churches can get busy doing. This is why we exist as the people of God, to proclaim 
His excellencies. His excellencies. And this is why the, the first and really the foundational part of our mission statement as a church is to worship God. Okay? You will not be fulfilling your purpose as a disciple of Jesus, and you will not really find your place as part of our church unless you worship God. This purpose implies actually using your mouth. Use your words, as we tell our kids. But much more importantly, this purpose implies actually using your heart to worship. We proclaim praises and excellencies because we believe him to be praiseworthy and excellent. So what are the, what are the excellencies that we're to proclaim? It really just refers to anything amazing about God. Okay? Anything amazing about God. Who he is as an awesome, holy, good, all-powerful, righteous, just, loving, and gracious God. Or everything that he has done in history, in the gospel especially, and for us personally. You have become this people that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If we find his light marvelous, we shouldn't be able to help but marvel. One of the things this means is that you as a Christian need to sing about God and to God. In Keith and Kristen's Getty New Book, they say, Though maybe misunderstood, regularly a bone of contention, and often underpracticed, congregational singing is one of the greatest and most beautiful tools we have been given to declare God's excellencies, strengthening his church and sharing his glory with the world. Then they talk about how singing is actually a frequent command in Scripture. God tells us to sing. So God cares that we sing, but also as well as, as where and how and what we sing. And they say that deeply felt thankfulness produces a sound from our voices that is robust and enthusiastic. How we sing does reveal how we think and feel about something. As we obey the command to sing, we are or should be unleashing a congregational sound of conviction. If we aren't, our children or visitors looking on have every right to wonder if what we are singing is truly important to us. In this sense, our singing betrays the truth about us for better and for worse. There's a lot of great things to chew on there. But as they spoke of, of singing as a command, the Gettys ended with this line, which just floored me. It said, How kind of God to command us to do something so wonderful. How kind of God. So sing. But singing isn't the only way we proclaim God's excellencies. As Tom Schreiner explains, the declaration of God's praises includes both worship and evangelism, spreading the good news of God, saving wonders to all peoples. If we are amazed by the wonders of, that God has done, we shouldn't be able to shut up about them. And as, as great books, top-notch movies funny jokes, or even cat videos prove to truly appreciate something to its fullest naturally involves sharing it with others. Right? We, we see something amazing and our first instinct is to find someone else to show. Which is why I see our evangelistic efforts, mine included, and wonder if we've truly experienced the excellencies of God or if we've barely scratched the surface, if at all. Edmund Clowney says, 
the heart of evangelism is doxological or about praise. Our hallelujahs do indeed join the anthems of the heavenly host, but here on earth they are heard by our neighbors. They too are called to doxology. We're going to see more about that next week. But I wonder, like, with that, might seeing our witnessing as a form of praise radically change our approach to it? So we've seen that we have a new community, a new honor, and a new purpose. There's something even more fundamental about our new identity in Christ. It changes, uh, it changes everything. It changes our status before God. It changes our destiny and the entire context in which we live. And it's a new reality. As God's people, we are given a totally new reality as holy people. Look how Peter describes our past and present living conditions again. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we once lived in darkness. We were ignorant of God, blind to the things of God. Our sins were dark and evil, and we lived under the shadow of death and judgment. It's dark. Imagine being trapped well below ground. It may be after a cave-in or a mining accident. How would you feel in the total darkness? Scared? Lost? Disoriented? After a few days there, what would you want to see? Light. Sunshine. Well, we were all, we believe, in worse darkness than that. Way worse darkness. And we had been in it inescapably our whole lives. But then Jesus came as the light of the world and shone into our hearts as we sing, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. Not just any light, but marvelous, wonderful light. Imagine seeing the sun for the first time ever. Jesus then beckons us out into the light. Come, follow me and be freed from your darkness. This is what Christ has won for us by his death and resurrection. He sunk into our darkness. And when he died, the whole world was plunged into darkness. But as the sun rose three days later, so did the Son of Righteousness. And he now offers the light of life to all who would receive him and follow him. As John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So have you come into the light yet? We've been mainly talking to, to people who have today. But have you? If not, Jesus may be calling you today. You've got to run to him. If you have, this light has implications for both how we live in community and how we treat sin. 1 John 1.7 tells us, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Our 
lifestyles to walk in the light. Our new reality is to be lived in the light of Christ. Which leads to the other breathtaking part of our new reality. That we are now, we now live under his mercy. You see that in verse 10? Read it once more. Once you were a people, or well, sorry, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Remember Hosea, uh, the prophet that God told to marry a prostitute and father her children? His children were given very unique names, including no mercy and not my people. These names were meant as as omens about Israel's soon coming exiles. And they, they had abandoned God over and over again like an immoral wife, and therefore his mercy dried up, and they would no longer be called my people, which was a historic term of affection. But then, right after pronouncing judgment on his people, God promised them restoration. Speaking through Hosea, saying, And I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, You are my people, and he shall say, You are my God. Now Peter comes along and says to the church, You are the fulfillment of this prophecy. You're the fulfillment of this prophecy. You were once not God's people and didn't have any of his mercy. But now, through Christ and his blood, you've got it. And you've got it for good. That means, this means that we should no longer live in constant guilt or condemnation. We've received mercy. This means we can't refuse to forgive ourselves. We've received mercy. This means we shouldn't be downcast all the time because we just keep failing. We've received mercy. We also should never withhold mercy from anyone else around us because we've received mercy mercy. At one time, you hadn't. But praise God, you have now. So live under the reality of his mercy. I'll leave you with one final aspect of our new identity, but it's actually the most vital of all. Because without it, there would be no new community, honor, purpose, or reality. So the most important part of our new identity as God's people is right there in what we're called. We are God's people. And so, our radical new identity also includes a new owner. A new owner. You might say master or lord there, but Peter uses this picture of ownership. You might have brushed over this when he read earlier. Peter said, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for what? A people for his own possession. And then down in verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You're God's people. And of course, God really owns everything in the entire universe, right? It's it's all his. But his people are a special possession of his. It's yet another sign of his love towards us. In Exodus 19, where a holy nation and a kingdom of priests came from, God also said, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So, I own everything. But out of everything I own, you'll be my treasure. 
God has staked his claim on us. And we are now his. Which means that we should do what God wants us to do. It also means that God can do with us what he wants to do. Further, this means that we don't belong to our native cultures or lands anymore. We don't belong exclusively to our racial tribe or identity or tribal identity anymore. We don't belong to our family heritage anymore, as if that controls us. We don't even belong to ourselves anymore. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are now God's possession. We are his people. So what does that mean for us? I hope it starts with proclaiming his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may that indeed be true. May we grasp who we are as your people. And may that awaken our hearts to tell of you, to share you, to sing of you, to declare your glory among the nations. For you truly are great. You are the great God. You are marvelous. You are good. And you are holy. We thank you. We praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen.